Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There bonus episode. Megan. Hey, Jen. Welcome to the uh, Patreon bonus episode. Number two. If you are listening to this because you're a patron, we thank you for signing up and supporting the podcast. Thank you very much. If you have any friends that you feel like would also want to be patrons and listen to these amazing bonus episodes, let them know. Let them know because we're also going to throw in some wacky uh, outtakes. Outtakes. Yeah. I, yeah. I still need to, you know, I think we said in an episode, like regular episode, like, oh, Megan's going to add these outtakes to the Patreon. And then I was like, yep, I'm totally going to do that. And promptly forgot. You have to remind moment. her a lot of things. Yeah, it's true. I keep a notebook. Do you? Listen, I have a lot of notebooks because I like to buy notebooks. Yeah, I love notebooks. And then I use the first page and I'm like, oh, look at this to-do it's list. So organized. You're so like good. using like different colored pens. Yes, you yes. have like the pen with the different colors at the top and you're like, everything that I've going to do today is in green. Things I need to do on Tuesday are in blue. High priority. Red. Definitely. <laughs> I do that for the first like four hours that I have the notebook. Right. And then after that, I don't know. I just have like a box of notebooks. And then them. things happen mm-hmm. to the notebook. I'll tell you, one of my favorite kind of notebooks are composition books. Oh, yeah. I love any kind of... And th- there's like some kind of composition book where they have all different kinds of... Designs. Designs, yes, mm-hmm. on the outside of the composition book, but it's still bound like a composition book. Yeah, I like those. Um, I'm a kind mm-hmm. of a spiral person, mm-hmm. as long as I don't jack it up and then I can't right. spiral it around. I always end up bending the spirals and then I hate it. Yeah. And then it just goes in the box with all the other notebooks. Yeah. So because we're having a bonus episode, we, we're not going to have corrections. Yeah, no need. No need. So but I do have a little it's not so much science news, but it's just so interesting. Kind of. Let's hear it. It's a little um, science vocabulary. I am a huge fan of vocabulary. Well, have you heard of biophilia? Biophilia, no. Are you a biophiliac? Like I love (laughs) biology or life? No, it is the suggestion that humans possess an innate tendency to seek connections with nature and other forms of life. 100%. It was actually introduced and became popular in the book by Edward O. Wilson. Oh, is that the diversity of life, Jen? No, it's a 1984 book called Biophilia. Oh, what? I know, right? But I I love the diversity of life, though. Edward O. Wilson. I know. We, we both have that book. Yes. It's like on our shelf just I, to make us look cool or something. I think pretty much every biologist, ecologist, everyone yes. probably owns that book. Well, that and Aldo Leopold's well, Sand County Almanac. Al- Almanac, yeah. Sand County Almanac. Why yeah, can't yeah, I yeah. talk? That's the one we had to read in college. Mm -hmm. It is a great book. He defines biophilia, which sounds, I don't know, sounds like something I would look at under a microscope. Or some kind of weird sex. Well, okay. I wasn't, I I mean, I didn't think that. I was thinking of like a little single-celled organism like cruising around. Anyway, (laughs) so he defines biophilia as the urge to affiliate with other forms of life. There was this meme I was looking at and it was really funny. And I was like, what can I say? What would be like the right word to say like you're trying to connect with nature? Mm Mm-hmm. And I was looking at different words and this one came up and I was like, huh. It's going to be in every report now that we write. Just like somehow <laughs> work it in there. Do you remember those kids in school who like the teacher would be like, use it in a sentence and they would be like, biophilia means blah, 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 blah. Yes. 
but I don't know how to use it in a sentence. Let me see. Jen is a biophiliac. This is a weird one. Mm-hmm. This is how to use it in a sentence. Bjork's iPad and iPhone applications for her album Biophilia. Oh, that's an she has an album <laughs> called Biophilia. Interesting. Maybe she's a fan of Edward O. Wilson. I, I don't think you can use it in a sentence. I think it just unless is, you're like describing unless you're describing what it, it is. But anyway, that's now cool. You know. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, biophilia. We're biophiliacs. What if I had a t-shirt that just said biophiliac? Oh, that would be cool. That just sounds like a Patreon-only t-shirt Throwing to me. that out there. Biophiliac. Okay, it's, I'm, I'm doing it. Okay, would it be a green t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Megan, do you have a story for us today? Because it is a your turn for the bonus episode. Yeah, I actually just opened up your Patreon episode folder. <laughs> and I was like, Sentinel Island. Wait a second. That's not right. That was a great story. All right, Jen. So I stumbled upon this story. I can't remember what I searched. Um, I think I was just like scrolling through a bunch of different articles that National Geographic put out about nature adventures. I think I searched the word adventure. Okay. And I was like, let's just scroll through. And there were a lot. There were like 122 pages of search results. For nature adventures. In National Geographic Online. Yeah. Wow. But I think those are for like people selling adventure getaways or something. No, no, no. It was like articles that were in National Geographic and it had the word adventure in it. Oh. Like I should have used a different... Should have narrowed that down a little bit. Yeah, should have narrowed that down a little. So anyway, by like page 10 of results... (laughs) I found this story and I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. You're still awake. A lot of scrolling. And then I found a million articles about this story. Oh. I have so many references. But oh. unfortunately, they all kind of say the same thing. It's just like a lot of references with the same information. Okay. So I'm excited to hear what this story is if there's if it's so yeah. popular. Let's first talk about mountains a little bit. Like what is a mountain, Jim? Oh God. <laughs> Are we going to Britannica? <clears throat> okay, there was let me just let me just say They're there like, was M for mountain. <laughs> there was a Britannica article and I scrolled right past it and I was like Fuck off. See you later, Britannica. It is not happening. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That Goodbye. was. Let's never do that again. The worst. It's not 1950. All right. I'm just going to tell you the different parts of a mountain, basically, because we'll need to know can, this. What? Can I stop you for a second? Yes. One of my friends who is stateside, I think she's in Montana right now. Mm-hmm. She's coming to Guam. And she asked me if I wanted her to bring me rhubarb. Like, she's like, do you like rhubarb? Do you want me to bring you some? And I was like, I I'm not 90 years old. <laughs> Wait a minute. I like rhubarb. Oh, you do? I like, well. Oh, I can tell her to bring some for you. I was like, I don't eat rhubarb because I'm not 100. And I was, she's like, but you're from the Midwest. And everybody in the Midwest loves rhubarb. And I was like, my grandparents loved it. They put it in that Noosa yogurt. Okay. Have you ever had that stuff? No. It's so freaking good. I think I've never, all I've ever seen rhubarb is like a rhubarb pie. And it right. was disgusting. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know. Rhubarb in the yogurt was like, whew. I, I, really maybe good. I just haven't had rhubarb in a good way. Also, the the British baking show, the Great British, ba- whatever it's called. Yeah. They always have rhubarb. Really? Like in one of the shows. Always. Always. So she was probably like, damn, you're so rude. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I don't want your stupid rhubarb. I was like, rhubarb is gross. That's for old people. <laughs> Goodbye. I bet it's good with chocolate. I don't know. Anyway, that's a total side note. When you said something about being old, what what did you say? I don't think I what said did you start? No, you started out with mountains. I was talking about mountains. Oh, Britannica. When I said, oh, you uh, said it's I'm not, not 1950. It's not 1950. Yeah. Sorry, that made me think of it. You can cut all that out. That was great. Which is so random. <laughs> 
Oh, no, it's staying in, Jen. All right, so we're going to start out with some parts of a mountain because we're going to kind of need to know a little bit about mountains. And I know okay. people are like, yeah, it's just like a really tall piece of rock. Anyway. Isn't is it the, the top of a volcano? I guess it depends on what kind of mountain we're talking about. Okay. I mean, I didn't go into like plate tectonics and stuff like that, Jen. Jesus. I'm out. <clears throat> I mean, Stone Mountain, the one, I mean, we've talked about this before. I've mentioned it. And the only reason I know it is because I lived in Georgia, but Stone Mountain is a batholith. It's kind of like like a fart <laughs> of a volcano that just never erupted. Mm-hmm. You love talking about farts, like I, mountain farts You know what's crazy? Farts. I was like, not really. I, I used to be the person who couldn't go to the bathroom knowing other people were outside. I would like run the water really loud. Yeah. And I like wouldn't talk about bathroom humor. And then I had a kid. And then that, yeah. And then it was like, yeah, well, then it's, yeah, farts all day long. (laughs) Your couch, it smells like farts. It smells horrible. He (laughs) said to me the other day, because he was home, we were home for the weekend, and he was like laying on the couch, he has like a blanket over him, and I walk into the room, and he's like, mom, I've been farting a lot today. And I was like, oh, God, why? I constantly run a candle in my house like i i figured out that i could put it on the warming plate in the middle of my um stovetop mm-hmm. and just like leave the candle warming and it constantly slowly goes down so i don't have to buy so many candles but it still makes the scent kind of permeate through the air right i mean the girls aren't that much better anyway <laughs> continue <laughs> right. about mountains so i'm just Let's gonna... talk about mountains now get back with us here so yeah the summit of the mountain is the top that's the point that you want to get to if of you're going to climb a mountain the slope is the thing that you climb up to get to the summit. Some are gradual, some are steep. Yeah, oh yeah. Right, right, totally. right. The face of a mountain is a cliff-like slope. So that's like the most steep slope ever. It's a face and you would mountain climb up it. Okay. Or rock climb up I it. I am following. The north face of Mount Eiger that is in Switzerland, that is said to be the hardest climb. And it is actually referred to as murderous wall for all the people who've died on it. Like I'm going to go on the murderous wall. That sounds fun. Okay. And then the other part of a mountain that everyone should know about is the valley. And that's in between mountains. Wow. It's shaped like a V or a U. I know that this is a lot of people might not know all of these names. Thank you. You know what? That's that's what I'm here for. We're going to talk about one particular mountain today. Okay. It is called Nanga Parbat. Okay. Or Nanga Parbat. I guess it depends on where you're from if you say Nanga or Nanga. It is known locally as Diamer. And it is the ninth highest mountain in the world at 8,126 meters or 26,660 feet above sea level. Top 10. Top 10. Yeah, right there. And there are a couple other articles that were like, it's the eighth tallest. And I'm like, when did one of them just fall? Too bad you didn't look at Britannica. Jesus Christ. But they would know. They're like, it's the fifth tallest because it's from 1935. (laughs) So it's located in the Diamer district of Pakistan's Gilgit-Baltistan region. So that's kind of like between Pakistan, India. Like if you were to triangulate the borders of Pakistan, India, and China, it mm-hmm. would be kind of like right there. But it's in Pakistan. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the map and where the words are listed on the map. <laughs> that you would triangulate between the three words, Pakistan, India, and China, and that's where the mountain is. But that was on the particular map that I was, I was looking gonna at. I was going to say, you so don't have that map. that's not really helpful at all. Nanga Parbat is the western anchor of the Himalayas. It is 17 miles or 27 kilometers west-southwest of Astor in the Pakistani-administered sector of the Kashmir region. So go look at a map. Nanga Parbat has a steep south wall that is 4,600 meters or 15,000 feet 
And that kind of looms over a valley. So that would be like a face. Okay. The south facing wall. The north side is even higher at 7,000 meters or 2,300 feet looking over the Indus River. Sounds beautiful. Oh, yeah. I I saw some photos. Very beautiful. Are you going to post some photos on the Patreon? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I have a lot of photos, actually. So we'll have photos and maps so everybody can just... Yeah. As you're listening... Follow along. Uh, The first climber to attempt the climb of the mountain, to Mm -hmm. summit the mountain was a British alpine climber, Albert F. Mummery, in 1895. And he died during the attempt. Oh, damn. In an avalanche. Okay. Mummery notably said about mountaineering, quote, It has frequently been noticed that all mountains appear doomed to pass through in three stages, an inaccessible peak, the most difficult ascent in the Alps, and an easy day for a lady. So he's, you know, I mean, 1895. Whatever. He did actually do mountaineering. I read a little bit about him. He did actually do mountaineering with women. Like there were women who you, who would climb mountains with him. So I was like, that's cool. The first climber to reach the top was an Austrian climber, Hermann Bull, in 1953. Oh, wow. So that's like a while later. A while later. I'm just saying, these are the ones that they said, but were there's nobody local, like nobody that lived there? I didn't read anything about anyone local climbing them other than people who would be kind of like in a Sherpa type uh, position, carrying stuff or setting up camps along the way. Yeah, no one local was like, let me go summit this mountain. Okay, no need. That was written about. Okay. There were a lot of Austrian, German, Italian, British, but I didn't really see anything about anyone Pakistani. Oh, I take that back. There are like later, like more modern day, there's a lot of Pakistani mountaineers. Mountaineers? What's the word I'm looking for? climbers who actually do go on a lot of these summits now they talk about it but right but before not, they they probably then. did but they just didn't talk about it right yeah exactly because it was like i'm the british guy who did this or <laughs> the austrian guy who did this and yeah and yeah. actually i think when mummery died in the avalanche in 1895 mm-hmm. there were two other people with him and i don't remember seeing their names i'm assuming that they were probably Pakistani or Indian. Right. All right. The southern side of the mountains is called the Rupal Face, and it's considered the world's highest mountain face. So it's not like the highest mountain, but that particular face. Right. Albert Mummery described the wall as the astounding difficulties of the southern face may be realized by the fact that the gigantic rock ridges, the dangers of the hanging glacier, and the steep ice of the northwest face, one of the most terrifying faces of a mountain I have ever seen, are preferable to the south face. So basically he's like, the south face is fucking badass. Mm -hmm. I would rather risk my life on this other side of the mountain that's equally as dangerous, but I mean, I guess less, slightly yes. less. So Nanga Parbat is considered the second hardest 8,000 meter peak after K2. And K2 is the second highest peak in the world. Everest is number one. K2 is number two, mm-hmm. um, as well as the most dangerous. So it's like, I guess Everest is not as difficult, but it's higher. Right. Right. So we were kind of talking about how from like 18, what was it like 1895? And then the first person to summit was 1953. So in between that time, 31 people died (gasps) attempting to climb it to be the first to ascend. Yeah. That's crazy. What did they die of? Avalanches. There's a lot of avalanches. I mean, Uh we're talking about a super steep mountain. So Uh avalanches are kind of like the way you go usually. Right. Um, And then falls. Probably some hypothermia up in there. Right. All the things. Yeah. What about like, uh, what is it? Oxygen depletion. Yeah. Elevation. Elevation sickness. Yeah. I didn't look up like how each person of those 31 died. Just that there were 31 people who died and probably it was avalanche. All Like a whole combination of these things. Everything. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Nangaparbat is nicknamed the Killer Mountain. It has a death rate of 22.3%. It is the third highest death rate in the world for mountaineering or climbers. Yeah, I feel like I would just be like, yeah, I'm good. But I guess other people would see that as a challenge. Sure, sure. And the, the more I read about mountaineering, the more I realized that people who climb have kind of an addiction. As of 2012, there have been at least 68 climber deaths on Nangaparbat. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's, I guess, including the 31. So is it snowy year round? Yeah. Just because it's so high. Because it's so high up. Just, yeah. Reading about climbers, how they climb in winter, they climb in summer. A lot of times it doesn't matter because it's still snowy. It's the same. It's right? just it, really the the difference is like the ferocity. What's the word I'm looking for? Of the storms. Oh, okay. Right, yeah, right, right. Like how ferocious the storms are. Like depending on the time of the year, what the storms like what the weather's going to be like. Yeah. That first ascent that I mentioned by Herman Buhl, uh, July 3rd, 1953, mm-hmm. he had actually gone up with some companions and they turned back because they were like, this is too fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and he ended up reaching the summit at seven o'clock in the evening um, and he had to make a temporary camp, which I learned is called bivouac. I guess bivouacking. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a word is when you make a temporary camp. So in this case, he made a temporary camp. Like sometimes you'll see climbers take kind of like a hammock style tent and just attach them to the wall. Right. Of wherever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it like so scary to me. A temporary camp without tents or cover. Right. Oh. And so he basically like rigged himself standing up on a narrow ledge <gasps> and then kind of dozing with one of his hands clasping a handhold, one handhold. No. And that's how he slept. And I'm like, that is a freaking nightmare. Well, that guy's kind of a badass. Yeah. I mean, for sure, a badass. Yes. That's insane. Lucky for him, the night was windless. And so he was able to like kind of hang out on the summit and he came back down after he you know had gone up, uh, waited the night and mm-hmm. then came back down. Uh, he left his ice axe up there. He he like forgot about it. He was like, oh, I'm just going to leave this here. I can't even like fall asleep and hold a pencil or pen. Right? Or like, my phone. You, or you know when you're like laying in bed and you're like holding the phone above you and you're like scrolling. When, I'm just thinking in school like when you're taking you notes to. and then you pass out and you wake up and your pencil and is yeah, like gone. On the ground. And you're looking around. You're like what? Like, how what? many people saw that? <laughs> everybody. Everybody. Everybody, saw, everybody it. saw it. I used to try and sit in the front of the classroom so that I wouldn't do that and I would always Oh, I was off. always in the back. So yeah, this the, he, he left his ice axe up there and then he came down with only one crampon, which... I guess is uh, the thing that you keep traction on your boots. They're like spiky things. It's like spiky things. Yeah. yeah. So only yeah. one. Oh. Man. And I don't know how many are on the bottom of the boots. So like, he came down like with one of those. So he only had one on one of his boots and yeah. no, what is it? No ice axe. I almost said ice pick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he also climbed without any extra oxygen. So no tanks or anything like that. So that's considered, and I think I mentioned it later in here, that there are different kinds of climbers. Mm-hmm. And there are climbers who are considered, quote, alpine mountaineers or alpine climbers. And those guys or ladies don't use any oxygen and uh, very minimal. Like they bring their own stuff on them. They don't use um sherpas or people to help carry their shit well they just have to train for that yeah i would imagine they just do you know go to certain elevations back down Mm -hmm. like try to train their bodies for that i know nothing about climbing i actually one of the references in here is called like climbing for noobs nice 
it's an outside magazine. Noobs. I use that outside.org was like, I was like, oh, let me tell me everything. Outside.org. It's so good. It there were so many good articles. There's so many good articles. But I know zero about climbing. I'm a little scared of heights. Uh, me too. No, I can't. I, I mean, I can deal with it a little. I get that weird feeling. Yeah. That like the vertigo. Kind of vertigo-y. Yeah. yeah zoomy deal. Mm-hmm. I'm not into it. Nope. Um, so yeah, Bull, when he made the first ascent, there I guess there are all these different peaks in the world, all these different mountains in the world that are 8,000 above meter. He was the first one to do one of those by himself. Where was he from again? Austria. He is truly a badass. He's probably Austria. like for climbers, they all know. They're like that guy. They have like jerseys with the name on the back. Yeah. Any climbers that are listening, let us know. One of my cousins... On my now not dad side, because I we kind of mentioned it before that I did an ancestry DNA thing, and then I have a different dad, yay! Um, so the dad that I grew up with, his family's side, I have a cousin who's a rock climber. Right. I mean, I've only really met him when he was a baby, and obviously he's a grown man now. Yeah. And he and his wife or fiance, I'm not sure, they go climbing all the time. And sadly, I remember seeing an Instagram post where one of their friends died. Yeah, it's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like you really need to know what you're doing Mm -hmm. and have the right equipment and all that stuff. That's why this guy, I mean, he's back in the day, you know, and they didn't have all the equipment they have now. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm saying for climbers, maybe he's like the dude. Yeah. So the route that Bull took up the mountain was on the East Ridge and only one person has repeated that same route. And that was in 1971 by Ivan Fiala and Michael Orlin. So I guess they went together. This is kind of just some history notes here. Um, June 23rd, 2013, at the base camp of Nanga Parbat, 15 to 20 Taliban terrorists dressed as Gilgit paramilitary officers uh, killed 10 climbers, hmm. including a Lithuanian, three Ukrainians, two Slovakians, two Chinese, a Chinese American, a Nepali, a Sherpa guide, and a Pakistani cook, totaling 11 victims. Oh my God. They came in uh, during the night, they tied everybody up, uh, robbed them, and then shot them. So what year was that? 2013. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was a Taliban dressed up as Pakistani. I think I remember hearing Gilgit, about this. Uh, paramilitary. Folk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like I heard this. It sounds very familiar. So I would imagine that that stopped people from going to that area for a while. Yeah, I think I think probably because there were definitely I mean, there's a lot of skirmishes going on in that area anyway, mm-hmm. um, between the Pakistani Indian border, which we'll talk a little bit about one of them later. Obviously, Taliban is in that area. So mm-hmm. a little bit dangerous. Okay, Jen, let's talk about a climber whose name is Tom Ballard. Okay. Hi, Tom Ballard. What's up, Tom? Uh, Tom was born in Belper, Derbyshire. Derbyshire? <laughs> Derbyshire. Derbyshire? Derbyshire, if we're going by the Pride and Prejudice yes, pronunciation. Let's do that. Yes, Derbyshire. In 1988, mm-hmm. his parents were both mountaineers, Jim Ballard and Allison Hargreaves. He has one sister whose name is Kate. In 1995, Ballard's family moved to Fort William, Scotland. He lived there until 2009. Then they relocated to the Alps. Then later, I don't know when, they moved to Val de Fossi in the Dolomites, where he met his fiance, Stefana Pederiva, who is uh, Italian, and her dad is an Alpine guide. And his name is Bruno Pederiva. Wait, where's the Dolomites? Isn't that Italy? Tom Ballard has always been a climber. In fact, Jen, when his mother was six months pregnant with him, she climbed the Eiger North Face. Do you remember I mentioned the Eiger earlier mm-hmm. on? Mm-hmm. It's like the tallest cliff face or something. 
When she was six months pregnant? She was six months pregnant, Jen. It is between 1,600 meters and 1,800 meters. That's over a mile high. And she was six fucking months pregnant. I couldn't even touch my toes when I was six months pregnant. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure six months pregnant, I was eating two cheeseburgers a day. Yeah, I don't, I wasn't climbing anything. Barely climbing up some stairs. Yeah. Wow. They're the real deal. I mean, I bet that was a birth that just kind of straight out. You know what I mean? Like people who are, (laughs) people who are like, fit like really fit people and they give birth they're just like boom here's the baby like the seals i don't know do you think so i think so there's this girl i used to know from derby she ran a marathon when she was nine months pregnant what? yes and she had the baby in like i don't know it was like two hours or something that's Some crazy really short amount of time anyway So he is considered one of the best climbers in the world. He can do all kinds of climbing. I didn't know that there were different kinds of climbing, but there are rock mixed and alpine Mm -hmm. climbing. And I also didn't know this. Climbing routes are named by the first person to use them. So the person who like climbs it first, and I guess like maybe they leave some things on there or they write it down. I don't know. They get to name it. And he got to name a number of them. It's kind of like when you find a new species. Yeah. And it might be named after you maybe. Right. But this is like, you know, climbing. So so if what if they don't survive it? Like the first guy that. Yeah. I don't know about that. I think. I think maybe it's the like you climb it up and back down and then you get to name it. And then you're like, I declare this. Yeah. And actually, I did read a little article about how a lot of the names are a little bit sexist or misogynistic. No, I'm not. But um, I didn't see any of his that seemed that way. He climbed the Eiger, the same one his mom did when he was in the womb in 2009. Okay. What year was he born? 1988. 88. Okay. Mm -hmm. So 2009, he climbed the Eiger and he climbed this particular route on the Eiger and he named it Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Nice. Then the first solo climb of the Eiger winter route, he also named. So the next year he did it in winter and I guess he did it by himself and it was a particular route. And he named that one Piola Sprungli. Okay. I have no Which idea what that something. means. It probably means something. Something great. And that was the next year in 2010. In 2013, he did the first free ascent. And I think that's when you do without ropes. I could be really wrong here, but I think free ascent is minus ropes and stuff, just like climbing. He did that in the winter and he did that on, uh, he did that on a mountain in the Dolomites called Catenaccio or Catenaccio. Um, and he called that one Olympia going for gold. Kind of a fun name. Yeah. And I just apologize to everybody. I'm going to F up all of these words because I have no idea how to say them. And this, I feel like it's going to come out bad. Wait, can I say something? Yes. But it says that the free ascent climbing is rock climbing in which the climber can use equipment such as ropes and means of climbing for just for protection or to protect against injury, but not to assist with your progress. So you can still have it all just so you don't fall and die like it's a you know for security but not to assist you in like the actual climb yes right right right. okay thank you for that i'm here to assist google with, yes yeah, I'm, I'm on he did a new route on the agassiz horn in the bernie's oberland and that he named if genghis can we can oh <laughs> i like it and i wonder Clever. if he's i wonder if you're saying it like if genghis can we can yes that would be anyway. i think so 
Yeah, probably. Which reminds me of this saying that people in Hawaii have about Scott Con. You, you know who Scott Con is? He's on Hawaii Five O. No, he's I've like never the shorter. Yeah, I only watch it because they did a roller derby episode, and I knew a bunch of people who skated in it. Yeah, there's this guy Scott Con. His dad's the famous Con. Like uh, not Shocker Khan, but the other <laughs> actor Khan with the last name Khan. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, he's really good. James yeah. Khan. James Khan. He was in Misery. Yes. 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 His yeah. son, I think that's his son, Scott Khan, is in Hawaii Five O. Oh, okay. Yeah. And people in Hawaii really don't like him because he said some like not so nice things about Hawaiian people. And so people say Scott Con no can. Oh, yeah, that's too bad. Scott Con no can. Yeah, they don't like him. He's a dick. I saw him once in a smoothie place. It was so random. He's really short. That is random. I also saw Dog the Bounty Hunter. You remember, and I think we mentioned in an early we, episode that we saw his wife. We saw them together at the airport. Yeah, yeah. I was like, we wait, were isn't together. That, isn't that, I mean, you can't miss them. No. But then I saw Dog the Bounty Hunter at the Whole Foods. That would be just so random. On Thanksgiving. You're yeah. just like reading some like oatmeal labels mm-hmm. and there he is. And I don't even remember why I was at the Whole Foods parking lot. Like I didn't shop there. So I was like, I mean, I didn't have that kind of money. But I think I was I had someone who was in the car with me who needed to go to Whole Foods or I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I was like driving around the parking lot and I saw just all this hair. And I was like, <laughs> what is that? Oh, like, wait a second. And I took a really blurry picture and sent it to my uncle who lives in Florida. Nice. It's very funny. Did I already tell that story on the podcast? I don't know. I, maybe I just tell it a lot. And it's no, just... I, I don't remember. I remember oh. you saying you saw him, but I don't remember the whole Enjoy. Thing. Enjoy it again. I'm sure you'll hear it in a couple of more episodes. Back to Tom Ballard. Uh, December 2014 to March 2015, he did a project known as Starlight and Storms, and he climbed the six major alpine north faces by himself solo, um, and he was the first person to do it in one winter with no support team. There's the Cima Grande de la Varedo, the Piz Battle, hopefully I'm saying this right, the Matterhorn, the Grandes Yorases, and the Petite, Drew, and the Eiger. Those are the six north faces that I guess all... It's kind of like a passport, if you will, of mountaineering people, climbers, who go and do these six um, So do they just get sponsorships to do all this? Tom was sponsored by Montaigne, which is, I think, a UK... I did read one of their articles. They do a lot of, like, gear stuff and Mm -hmm. climbing articles and things like that. So, yeah, you can get sponsorships um, or things like the North Face or whatever, like climbing gear outdoor gear patagonia patagonia yeah all these places all the cliff bars (laughs) just so many cliff bars i think the people who are like super into climbing like he is and like his family Mm -hmm. was they're just like i mean they get sponsored i don't think that they spend a lot of money on anything else in their they're just well known for that and that's what they do i mean at the time he was doing these things he was living in a van with with his dad there's a documentary which i'm going to mention here in a second and there's he was on a podcast and he did a bunch of different interviews Mm -hmm. gq like all these different things and yeah basically it's like he lived to climb wow he didn't need anything else that's all he did very passionate. So yeah, just like I was saying, there was a film that documented that particular project, The Starlight and Storms, where he did the six faces mm-hmm. by himself. Um, and the the documentary or the project, the film is called Tom. And it won a, lo- a number of international awards, film festival awards. Yeah. So and cool. there is a um, there is a trailer that you can watch. And it's just kind of like, I mean, he's real. He's a really quiet person. As far as like, I could tell, like he, you know, didn't talk a lot. And he really focused on climbing. And he also liked to be alone. 
when he was climbing, which I, apparently is very similar to his mother. But like no distractions. No distractions. Well, and also I feel like in a lot of these kind of sport, you wouldn't want to be responsible, like worrying about somebody else. Right. You just want to focus on yourself and what you're doing mm-hmm. and that's it. Well, yeah, you're I can in see that. that extreme environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want someone who's who can't handle their own weight. Or just, yeah, just literally. worrying about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, in 2016, he established a new 26 pitch. And I learned about this on the noob climbing link that I'm going to put in wow. my references. Um, so this is a rock climb and he named it um, Dirty Harry. And that was on the northwest face of Civetta, which is another face or so he's just doing a lot of climbs that nobody's done and he's naming them Mm -hmm. and he's young he's young yeah and then he also named a new mixed route which i think mixed route is like when you do rock climbing and alpine like kind of you're doing different kinds of climbing just Mm -hmm. all together Mm -hmm. and he named that the titanic and that was again on the north face of the eiger so he's done the eiger a number of times since in the womb he also created what was at the time the world's hardest dry tooling climb Uh, it's called called A Line Above the Sky, and that was in Dolomites. That's what he named it, A Line Above the Sky. Wow. I think I like all of the names that he's come up with. Yeah, they're very creative and really nice. Yeah, right? Makes you want to go there. In 2017, he met another climber named Danielle uh, Nardi, who is an Italian climber. They tried to climb an unclimbed northeast face of Link Sar, and that is in Pakistan. Wait, Daniel or Danielle? Well, it's D D A N I E L E. Danielle. Yeah, maybe because it's Italian. Danielle. Danielle. Oh yeah, maybe it's like a Danielle Nardi. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. See, <laughs> see. Oh god. Just <laughs> offending people left and right. So great. Let me talk a little bit about Tom Ballard's family life and philosophy on climbing, because I found this kind of interesting about him. Okay. So when he was six, his mom died. That was August of 1995, and she died on the Himalayan peak, K2. So she was doing, she actually had gone up and she was coming back down and oh she gosh. she passed away. Oh. I don't know if it was an accident. I didn't really read too much into her stuff. She's actually a world famous climber. Every article that is mentions Tom, that is about Tom, inevitably will talk about her. So she's like this world class. Yeah, but was, see, even when you're the best, you have an accident. Yeah. And then anything. you leave your six-year-old with mm-hmm. no parent. And his sister his younger sister Kate oh yeah he has a sister oh that's so sad and actually Kate also is a climber but I mean I didn't read too many articles about her she was just kind of mentioned as she's his sister and there's some photos of them together at different Mm -hmm. peaks his mom Allison is known to have climbed Everest by herself that's what she's known for she climbed Everest solo with no oxygen wow So she's like a hardcore alpine climber yep and she also completed the big six those alpine peaks that I mentioned earlier that he had done in the winter before that he she had done it in one spring season wow yeah definitely a badass yeah uh in 2010 david rose and ed douglas wrote a book called regions of the heart and this took a bunch of information from allison's diaries so his mom's diaries and it turns out that she had a volatile relationship with her husband tom's dad jim ballard Uh, they had met when allison was 16 and jim was close to 40 years old and he was running (laughs) he was running a climbing shop in matlock england 
Oh my. Yeah. Scandal. Scandal. So when she was 18, they moved in together and no one was real happy about it. It's it, it mentions in one of the articles like her parents were both Oxford graduates and they were really disappointed in this turn in her She's life. She's 18 and he was like 42-ish, yeah, or more, or more. 40 something. Uh they had a lot of money issues because I mean they're both very passionate about climbing. I think that's what brought them together. Yeah. But it's not something that makes you a lot of money. Um, and it's just kind of like it's a passion. Yeah. You're doing it because you love it. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of money issues. And also in her diaries, it seems as though she's, and this is, I mean, no one really says it any other way in the articles. It seems like she's dealing with domestic abuse from Jim. Oh, man. There is some speculation that in 1993, Jim and Allison had split up from each other. And that's when she took the trip to K2 a couple mm. of years later. And I don't know if it was like during that time between 93 and 95, when she passed away on K2, they're saying that she might have taken that trip to K2 to uh, out of spite mm. just to like shoot or vengeance or something and that affected the way that she was climbing yeah and that's, like there's for the wrong reasons yeah. and yeah so they're trying to make a connection i think this that's what this book is trying to do is make a connection between that relationship and her final uh climb i think it would be an interesting read regions of the heart yeah like r-e-g-i-o-n-s region yeah there are all these articles about tom you know about his mom allison hargreaves like this amazing they're both amazing climbers like world class mm-hmm. uh, but then there's like this weird personal information you know yeah like about and i'm like whoa that's different 40 year old going for 16 i mean to me that's just right there Ugh. it's yeah yeah a little no questionable. Bueno. here's some philosophy how about how tom feels about mountains quote i feel totally at ease on mountains it's down here that i feel uncomfortable I'm regularly asked, what do you think about when you're climbing a mountain? Your mother? To which I say, no. Oddly enough, I'm thinking mainly about not falling off. I mean, don't get me wrong. I believe that my mother is present with us as we talk now in spirit. But it would be mistaken for people to imagine that my climbing mountains was somehow an attempt to try to get closer to her. If you think of the six north faces that I've just done, they're on every climber's wish list. We are like stamp collectors in that way. This next part is about how he feels about different kinds of climbers. Mm-hmm. On Everest, he said, some climbers climbers are basically tourists. They have little expertise. What they have is money. They have oxygen. They have Sherpas to carry their gear. In life, I believe in serving an apprenticeship. My mother climbed Everest without oxygen. She was up there on her own completely. She didn't use porters. People like my mom were doing that decades ago. With mountaineering, it's not so much about the ascent itself. It's the style of the ascent, how you go about it. That's a huge part of it. And then the last little quote that I really like from him is, on the whole, he, he, he said, I would rather not die in bed. Yeah. Die doing what you love, I guess. Right? So let's talk a little bit about Danielle Nardi, who I mentioned earlier. They met mm-hmm. in 2017. Okay. Um, there's not a lot about him. The, there is a Facebook page, which, you know, has a bunch of his posts on it, but it's all in Italian. And listen, I have been doing the Duolingo for a little while, but I'm not that <laughs> versed. <laughs> I'm like, ragazzo. Yeah, that means that means like, boy, got you. <laughs> That's where I am. Uh, so he's from Sez, Italy, and he is described as an ambassador for human rights. He had climbed five of the 8,000 ers, the 8,000 or up meter mm-hmm. um, heights, including K2 and Everest. And then I found some information about him on a blog called Adventure Sports with Stefan Nestler. And in December, December 2018, Stefan wrote about this planned trip that Daniele and Tom had. This is when they planned to summit Nanga Parbat. Okay. Okay. This will be the fifth time that Daniele had 
has is going to go and try it. So he's gone four times before and failed. And Tom has never done it before. Okay. So in like 20- failed means he made it. He made it like partially and then it was like bad weather, avalanche, whatever. He had to come back down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, he and Tom started to make a plan to climb together with two other climbers, Pakistani mountaineers, Ramat Ullah Baig and Kareem Hayat. And they hope to make a new route up to the summit by using what's called the Mummery Rib. So I'm going to have a map of all the different routes that are on Nanga Parbat. The Mummery Rib is this one particular place uh, that's kind of in the middle. Nardi tried it once before in 2013 with a French climber, Elizabeth Revel, and they made it to about 6,400 meters. And then they had to come back down. Wow. Okay, so the last time he tried Nanga Parbat was in 2016, but ended up not making it because of some vague issues with other climbers. And I found one article, and they called him in this article, Volatile. Oh. So I'm like, did he get into like fights with other, were they just like up there, like hitting each other and then one of them rolled down in a giant snowball? Like how, (laughs) you know what I mean? Maybe he's just very passionate. He's like, hey, you know, I really like to climb. Are you in the way? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So offensive. I'm going to somehow, they're going to be like, you are no longer Italian. Sorry. You've been kicked out of the club. It's well, I can't do an Irish accent. Yeah. It's like the other half. Right. Daniela describes his feeling about Nanga as, quote, it's my big dream, not an obsession. Rather, it is the passion for an idea and even more for a style to understand the mountain and life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Throughout all of this, I'm like reading all these these climbers, mountaineers, like they just, it's like they spend so much time alone in the wilderness. And some of the things that they say are so profound. Listen, Megan, they're biophiliacs. <laughs> they're biophiliacs. A hundred percent. That totally goes along. Green compassion. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yes. Yes. They have it. It's like they're breathing that that thin, cold air. The biophilia. Just like uh, part of nature. Both Daniele and Tom wanted to ascend what's called alpine style, like I mentioned before, meaning that they're not going to have a chain of high camps that are already kind of set up for them. Mm -hmm. And then they're also not going to go with any oxygen. They had first met, I mentioned this earlier, they first met when they went to do that link SAR. They made it 5,700 meters, but then an avalanche hit their camp and they had to turn around and go back. Can you imagine you're just like, right, an avalanche? like, like, dude, we gotta go guys you know right now their plan is so between when they met in 2017 and now 2019 that that's when they were kind of planning throughout 2018 to go Mm -hmm. up this mummery spur or mummery rib on nanga parbat in february of 2019 let's talk about their ascent okay mummery spur in 2019 so this area mummery spur or mummery rib is plagued by avalanches and a lot of climbers actually consider this route to be suicidal they're like don't fucking do it wait why is it named mummery wasn't that the guy mummery is the guy yeah, yeah in 1895 who first tried to ascend and only got like six thousand feet something like that and then there was a big avalanche and he died but he got to name it. Or but he got somebody... to name it. Someone well, named it. Somebody I think... named it after him. Right. Okay. The mummer. And I don't know if it's that's where he died or I didn't think he was in that. I thought he was like on another side of the mountain. But okay. Yeah. It's called mummery rib okay, okay, okay. or spur. All right. Got it. And actually, when you're looking at a picture of it, it is really rocky. And this it's like a lot of snow. And then there's this kind of like one little area that does kind of look like the sides of a rib. Maybe okay. that's why. I don't know. But it 
it's like kind of sticks out a little bit. They started out sometime in the beginning of February, counting back from the end of the story. I think they start around the 10th or 11th of February. Okay. On February 23rd, uh, they were at about 5,700 meters or 18,700 feet. Wow. It's like meters. You're like, oh, that's not bad. But then it's like... I don't know. Then our brains wrap them. Yeah, use the yeah. feet. And we're like, whoa. Whoa, that's crazy. So they reported on February 23rd, quote, uh, this is actually a quote from them. Uh, we are at Campo 3. The day is good. Until recently, there was a little wind and clouds on the summit, but now the situation has definitely improved. We're a little tired because we had to bring backpacks to Mount C3. Now we'll start digging for it. So they made a camp, I guess, at a certain checkpoint to like, okay, now this is where we're going to make like the hard part of the ascent, I think is what they're saying. Okay. Yeah. That's what digging for it is. Yeah. The next day, February 24th, the home team. So they have a whole team of people who are down at home base at the bottom of the mountain. The home team, they made a post. I don't know if this was on Facebook or Twitter or what, saying that the two had reached 6,300 meters or 20,670 feet. Holy shit. So they clocked in. Now, I I don't know if you remember, there were four people who went on this trip. These two guys, Daniele and Tom, and then two um, Pakistani climbers Mm -hmm. who went with them. Them, those guys actually turned around because the weather was getting bad hmm. and they were like this is kind of dangerous uh this is what the home team posted about their getting to 6300 meters daniele just announced that they arrived at about 6300 meters maybe even something more they went up a fireplace different than the one up with elizabeth they went on light now they're going down to c4 the weather is not good there was fog sleet and wind and wind gusts. The last position that Daniele managed to send us was a little lower than the one indicated in the picture, then continued in the climb for another hour. The position is red, therefore an approximation. I don't know what a fireplace is. I don't know what they mean by went on light. I think that might be like they aren't carrying a lot of gear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Remember, what was it, like 2016, Daniele and this other, that French climber, Elizabeth, they went up and they didn't make it. I think they made it to right about where they are. Okay. Yeah. And so I guess they're trying a different route from when he had tried previously. Maybe the fireplace is the name of a spot. That yeah. They just call it that as a sure. reference point. I can't imagine that there's just like a chimney and a fireplace just randomly. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, there used to be a house here. <laughs> anyway (laughs) just so inviting i mean that's when you start to hallucinate because like low oxygen levels (laughs) like you're just sitting in a rocking chair in front of a hot fire but actually you're just on a loose rock about to tumble (laughs) yeah off the side of the cliff that transmission where they explained the weather was not so good and where they were that is the last time a transmission comes through from them to their home base I know. On February 28th, so five days later, they started a rescue attempt. Uh, They used high altitude drones, helicopters, and mountaineers on foot. Their weather was awful, like a ton of heavy snowfall. Mm -hmm. And then also on top of all of this, there is a military standoff between Pakistan and India, a little skirmish happening, and the rescue helicopters were not allowed to use the airspace. You would think that they'd be like, this is a rescue operation. We have nothing Mm. to do with whatever's going on with you guys. Yeah. On that day, February 28th, they saw the people who were doing all of the rescue operation Mm -hmm. saw a three-person tent thought to be theirs. Um, They could see it, but they couldn't get to it. And I'm saying they could see it. 
We're talking about like through binoculars and like telescopes. Uh, friends and family raised 148,000 euros to help with the search effort to get it like done, oh. like fuel, all the people, whatever. Mm-hmm. Seven days later, mm. on March 6th, the official search was called off, according to media outlets. And then there was a Basque climber named Alex Tixicon. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know this, uh, but Basque is like this autonomous area in Spain. They're mm-hmm. like super traditional, like heavy culture. Um, he actually continued the search for these guys with four Spanish rescuers and a Pakistani mountaineer named Ali Sadpara. Okay. Sadpara. So everybody else had called it off, but these guys These were guys like, were like, we got to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. They actually ended up getting to use a military helicopter. I don't know which military. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming Pakistan, because that's where they are. Mm-hmm. They actually took a bunch of YouTube videos of the search effort. I watched a few. Just them flying. Wow. And it's a lot of snow and a lot of white and you Oof. can't see shit. And it's windy and mm-hmm. yeah. Someplace between March 7th and March 9th, they actually spotted the outline of two bodies in the rocky part of the Mummery Spur on the mountain, and they spotted them using um, a telescope camera. So Alex had this specialized telescope camera mm-hmm. and took a photo of what they thought they were seeing. Okay. Um, then they took those photos and sent them to the search coordinators, the families of Daniela and Tom, and an Italian ambassador, Stefano Pontecorvo. So all of those people looked at them, and they all agreed that the figures were probably, very probably, Nardi and Ballard, on March 9th, 2019, they confirmed the figures to be the bodies of Daniele and Tom, beyond a reasonable doubt. The bodies? This is not a survivor story, Megan. Unfortunately, they were in an area too difficult to to reach to recover them at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Stefano Pontecorvo wrote on Twitter, with great sadness, I inform that the search of Daniele, Nardi, and Tom Ballard is over as Alec Tixicon and the search team have confirmed that the silhouettes spotted on Mummery at about 5,900 meters are those of Daniele and Tom, RIP. Well, like, what were their bodies like? Were they just sitting in the snow? I mean, what was the... There, I read a couple different things. They're definitely tied to a rope. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bottom body looks to be kind of um, dangling. And the other body is more attached to the rope. So it seems likely that they fell. Oh my they said that it probably wasn't an avalanche. I read something that said it might have been an avalanche and something that said they ruled out an avalanche. It's like that area gets a lot of avalanches. So mm-hmm. I don't know if so something just shifted. Wind. But yeah. Yeah. And then they fell. You can see the photo. The families allowed the photo to be public. Mm-hmm. And I went and looked at it and you can't... I mean, I'm like, how do they even tell that those are bodies? Like, how are they sure? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they didn't come down from the mountain. So like, right, right. But did they ever when the weather was better, go back and try and get I, better yeah, photos or I tried to read a bunch of different I was trying to find something that said, okay, you know, we found them, we're going to remove them. Because mm-hmm. obviously, Daniela had gone up that area. Yeah, before. Like, how come they couldn't go get those guys? Right. Like, is someone going to go get them? That's, you know, I always have this thought in my mind, especially about Everest, all of these like high altitude places where people die and they, then they're just left they there. They get left. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes me so sad. I mean, maybe for them, it might not be sad because they love climbing. It just seems cold and lonely. 
I guess they're there together. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, they're at approximately 5,900 meters or 19,356 feet on the Mummery Spur, just a little bit higher than the Camp 3 location where they called in on February 23rd. I was going to say, didn't you say they were at 20,000 some? So maybe they were trying to go back down? Yeah, either they're trying to go back down or they fell. Or they fell. Yeah, okay. I did read that they might try to recover the bodies in the future, but I didn't see where they've done that yet. Their families wrote, a part of them will always remain on the Nanga Parbat. The big pain hurts facing objective facts and after doing everything possible finding them, we must accept what happened. Daniele will remain a husband, a father, a son, a brother, and a friend lost for a dream that we have always accepted, respected, and shared. Mm. We like to remember how you really are in love with life, adventurous, scrupulous, courageous, loyal, attentive to detail, and always present in times of need. But above all, we like to remember you with your own words, quote, I'd like to be remembered as a man who tried to do something incredible, impossible, but didn't give up. And if I won't return, I'd like to give a message to my son. Don't stop. Don't give up. Do your thing because the world needs better people to make peace a reality and not just an idea. It's worth doing it. Oh, anybody who's going to do take those kind of risks, they know and they're, they've already been okay with dying, doing right. that. With you know? accepting that. Yes. Yeah. Mentioned earlier that Daniele's Facebook is still up mm. um, and people post on it all the time. And there are tons of videos of him, of course, speaking Italian. So I have no idea what he's saying um, and hiking, like mm. holding a camera. And he's just like, and he's like talking about something very passionately. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Someday you'll know, Megan. Just keep it up. <sighs> Someday. <laughs> I'm like, yes. Just send it to your dad. Just be like, be can okay. you translate this? There are all those videos you can see of him and a lot of like kind of inspirational things, again, in Italian. Uh, Tom Ballard, there's a ton of information on him. I mean, every single climbing magazine, online, whatever, did uh, like a in memoriam of him. That's so cool. Yeah. Hey, and he was 30 okay. at the time. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. young. So Daniele was 42 and, and Tom was... 30. Hey, I just wanted you to know that right now in Guam, we're having a total supermoon lunar eclipse and we should go outside and take oh, our kids to yeah. go check it out. Let's go do that. Man, Jen, that was a fun lunar eclipse. Yeah, I was like, it's getting bigger. Wait, it's getting smaller. Wait, it takes a few hours. And the kids were like, we're going to ride on scooters around the neighborhood. In the dark. And we were like, let's go in. All right. (laughs) It was kind of cool, though. I mean, I did, uh, like the kids were saying, expect it to be more red since it's a blood moon, but... Maybe later. A nice little uh, intermission for our story there. Yes, that was nice. A little fresh air. Sad story. I was hoping that they would have made it. I mean, I knew from the beginning that they didn't because of all the articles starting out with, uh, you know, uh, Climbing World mourns the loss of... Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, this is not this a survivor story. Not a survivor Usually story. Usually I like those survivor stories, but this, I think I think that was kind of poignant for them. Well, and it seems like they just kept, maybe a lot of climbers do this. You know, mm-hmm. they go to the next challenge and they keep pushing oh, the yeah. envelope further and further and Definitely. getting more extreme. And where, and I think I mentioned this before that Tom had said, it's like an addiction. Mm-hmm. You just keep going back. And some climbers say like, what's the difference between me climbing And someone sticking a needle in their arm, you know, like heroin addiction. Like, what's the difference? Uh, Really not a lot. Like, that's what they're like. Maybe one's healthier than the other. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah. But they they definitely have like a passion, a really huge passion for the outdoors. And yeah, pushing yourself to certain limits. I'm more of a a lollygagger when it comes to hiking. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a stop and drink my water here, slow my heart rate down. 
type of hiker. All right. Well, I do have a number of organizations to kind of highlight. This comes from an article in National Geographic called Five Ways to Help the Sherpas of Everest. So I thought it would be a good thing to focus on the folks who actually pack people up and down the mountain and that's part of their livelihood. It's not just an extracurricular activity. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the ways that they survive where they live. The first one is the Alex Lowe Charitable Charitable Foundation. This is where individual donors can help by purchasing photos of the Everest region and its people donated by professional photographers, um, including some National Geographic photographers. And when they make those purchases, that all of that money, 100% of the proceeds go to the Sherpa community, helping them learn more mountaineering skills and uh, get better educated. Nice. Yeah. Then there's the International Avalanche Nest Egg Foundation. This is a nonprofit that matches donations up to $1,000 to the Himalayan Trust. And that provides scholarships to children who are impacted by tragedy that happens to their parents on Mount Everest. Oh, I get it. Nest egg. Yeah. So they have some. Correct. Because once you, I mean, if if you imagine, yeah, there's, uh, you know, your dad goes up with a group of people and doesn't come back down and he was the sole provider for your family Mm -hmm. i mean that's no good uh the third one here is the juniper fund this is a fund started by mountain guides dave morton and melissa arnott and they provide assistance to individuals families and communities in underserved countries adversely impacted by their work for the mountain-based adventure industry i think that's good that people are recognizing that this is more of an adventure industry but the people who are packing up and down Mm -hmm. for people who are on these adventures that's not an adventure industry for them that's their livelihood right that's what they have that's Mm -hmm. all they have Mm -hmm. all right and then our last one is the sherpa education fund and this is a fund that finances education for sherpa students in the kumbu region near mount everest okay Yeah, so those are a number of places that you can support and learn more about what it is like for Sherpas. And that's pretty cool. So, Jen, here we are. Yes, the emergency preparedness kit. Emergency preparedness kit. Let's hear it. What What are your thoughts? Um, What are you thinking, Megan? I just don't know because I would never do that. Yeah, ever. So mine would just be like a helicopter. I would just be in one of those simulators, (laughs) you know, like pretend, pretend. Yeah. So like on a treadmill. Well, so so yeah. So I um, got a treadmill for Christmas. Yes. And it was the Christmas before pandemic, before Mm -hmm. coronavirus Mm -hmm. hit. It has a screen and it has all these, I won't mention the program or anything because sure. it's not like I'm sponsoring them or they're, I mean, they're sponsoring, sponsoring us. You know, you can do all these different hikes all over the world or runs or walks or whatever you want to do. And actually, it was really great during the pandemic because we couldn't mm. go anywhere. Well, still haven't gone anywhere. And but yet you felt like, oh, I'm in like, you know, Croatia doing this run (laughs) and it's so beautiful and I'm here and I'm in Hawaii or whatever. Yeah. I feel like I would just be in some sort of like, ooh, maybe a VR, a virtual reality, like with the whole headset and everything. Yeah. Have you ever used one of those? No, not fully. I think I like way in the day. I. I have a friend in Hawaii, Lucy, who purchased a VR Mm -hmm. and I used it one time. I played a game with the kids like they were like, oh, you know, Auntie Megan, come and play this. And so I like put on the headset and it it was a game where there was like this giant worm thing in the ocean 
and it had like little worms and you had to like shoot Ew. them or something. But Ew. they were like cartoony and cute. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like a real... It was like little blobs almost okay. or whatever. And it was in the ocean and I was so disoriented after I took it. I was like, I felt like I was there. It Did was you crazy. Get, I would have gotten seasick. I got a little... If I felt a little funky. Yeah, I'm not really into that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if I were to have to experience sure climbing it would have to be with a vr headset with a vr headset or some sort of like <laughs> walking in i remember there's this place in oklahoma city called the omniplex it's still there it's is like a like science those, center kind wait, of wait, thing wait. is that i feel like they did a lot of these in the late 90s like everyone was super into it what was it called where you go and it's like imax theater oh yeah there was the imax you sit in the imax and it's like you're yes. flying over the mountains and you it's know. all 3d and yeah. the sound is all crazy crazy but this one was you go into this little you walk into this little i don't know capsule thing and mm-hmm. you it's like you're gonna live what it feels like to be in an earthquake so you see it and it shakes you around what? kind of thing yeah, it was like a like a Disney ride, like a simulator, but of some in sort. a capsule. That's crazy. Yeah, it would have to be something like that because there is no way I have any kind of climber blood addiction <laughs> in me at all to go anywhere. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I've been to some really beautiful places, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, it's real pretty, but I'm not going to the edge. So anytime I'm in any kind of height situation, I also have been to the Grand Canyon the year that actually I mentioned this in a previous episode when I marched in the Fiesta Bowl parade in high school. Lovely. <laughs> with yes. my band. High school with band. Your, with your never nudes on underneath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> because, didn't you have to wear some like undergarments? Oh, I wore a lot of umbros, Jen. <laughs> Those soccer shorts. Nice. Umbros and white band t-shirt with a little emblem on it. Anyway. Awesome. God, let's not talk about that again. Right. So, uh, yeah, but we got to see the Grand Canyon. But it's like anytime I've been in any kind of height situation. So the Grand Canyon or like standing on someone's second porch balcony. Yes. All I can think about is what if I jumped off right now? Like not in a suicidal kind of way, not like in a creepy, weird way, but yeah. in like a what would physically happen to my, you know, like just. Yeah, like any high rise. I went with one of my friends when I lived in L.A. She was from New York. Mm-hmm. And she's like, let's just go to New York. And it's, you know, it was like somehow real weirdly cheap to fly straight from L.A. to New York City. Oh, could probably because they do it all the time. They just do There's it all the time. Like so many people. So it was so cheap. So I went with her and her parents lived in this like on 40 something floor of oh, a God. high rise in their apartment. And when we went on the balcony, I was just like, I just can't. I can't hang out here. No. How, how is that relaxing? It was not relaxing. All I can think about is like, what if something, you, uh, what if the railing falls? Or what if this, you know, it like, just, you're just going to die. The vertigo. Yes. The vertigo was too much. So anyway. So yeah. No, not. I'm good. I like to. I'm a sea level girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I also can't go the other way. I can't. I don't like to dive. I'm okay with diving, but mm. not. I'm not really into it. All the pressure. Yeah, that's all I can a lot think of about. A lot, of, a lot of water yep. pressure, a lot of water. It's a little creepy. So yeah. yeah, so let's let's just say that it's. I wouldn't even go. I would. I would VR it all the way. VR headset or IMAX. Yeah, IMAX theater or some sort of simulator machine. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> VR headset or some sort of simulator machine. <laughs> some sort of perfect wizardry. Yeah, I feel like that's feel like probably it. the safest way to go. Yes, I like it. I like okay. it a lot. Well, that was a good story. It was really sad and uh, such a bummer. But I guess when you live those kind of that lifestyle, then I, you know. Right. In a lot of these stories, people are, that's their passion. Yep. And they're they're cool with it. 
Yep. You're like, they all are. right. They've already, yeah. I mean, Tom Ballard said, I would rather not die in bed. Yep. And he didn't. And he didn't. I wonder if the pandemic um, has or something else has stopped them from being able to go and try and... I'll keep looking out and see if I can find if they were ever taken Yeah, update down. us if you mm-hmm. ever hear anymore let's try to follow that story so well thanks megan yeah and thanks welcome. to all of our patrons yes thank i hope you, you enjoyed so the story don't forget to use your discount codes if you want to get some merch i know oh, yeah. i've seen a couple people have used them so that's pretty cool and, and if now you... we're gonna have a bi- biophiliac shirt that's right it's gonna happen we have some well, new stuff out and two i just wanted to say that we have the ability you have the ability to message us if you have any questions or if anything goes mm-hmm. wrong with your order or whatever we kind of are tracking those as best as we can mm-hmm. but if you have any questions you can always message message us on patreon um just use a little message thing for sure let us know and let us know if you have any stories you want to hear yeah special stories or if you have your own stories that you want to share with us yeah we want to hear those for sure definitely Mm -hmm. so thanks for listening and remember don't die out there Bye. bye